Well, hi everyone and welcome to this next episode of the No Diving Podcast with David Campbell, highly esteemed David Campbell and me, Tom White. It's great to be with you again for episode nine, where we are going to take some time to talk about law and grace. Law and grace, another big topic that David's addressed in his, in his book that you can get at all good bookstores. So David, I'm going to start off, we're going to dive straight in and uh you you've been a pastor for many years i have been a pastor for a few years and sometimes you hear from people and i think it's maybe quite a common um confusion in the body of christ they say why do we still need the old testament or what relationship does the old testament have to us now we're living in the new covenant we have grace etc etc so straight off the bat can you just explain to us what relationship does the old testament have to us now yeah, part of the problem here is it relates to eschatology, as everything does in the end. Uh, part of the problem, uh, particularly in North America, is the influence of this system called dispensationalism, uh, which is the left-behind theology. And one of the aspects of dispensationalism that people may not be aware of is it, it um, says that there's a complete division between the old covenant and the new covenant there's no continuity that the old covenant deals with the jewish people and will be put back into force in the earthly millennium uh and meanwhile god has a totally separate covenant for the church which is in force from you know the pentecost until christ's return then it goes out of force and then it returns back to the old covenant rebuilding the temple and all the rest of it so in people's mentality uh, in Christian circles, they tend, they've tended, many people have grown up with this sort of idea that uh, we have nothing more to do with the Old Testament, and this is all the New Testament life that we live and so on. But the problem is that um, the two, the, the Old and the New Testament are, um, are organically connected in the closest possible way, in the, in the way they're connected is the idea of promise and fulfillment. So the Old Testament contains the promise. The New Testament contains the fulfillment of what is in the Old Testament. And Jesus was really clear about this. He talked about, you know, if you really read Moses, you'd understand who I am. And he criticized the Pharisees and um, the teachers of the law. He, 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 he criticized them for their lack of commitment to the uh, Old Testament scriptures. He didn't criticize them for being, you know, old covenant. You're not getting the new thing that's doing. He said, you don't obey. You don't obey the word of God as it's been delivered to you. You don't understand it. You don't obey it. And you do your very best to make sure nobody else gets it either. Um, so uh, the uh, whole concept of the law, uh, the giving of the law is uh, rooted and grounded in the idea of a legal arrangement or a treaty between um, a conquered king and conquered people. And God used uh, the, a format of a legal treaty um, that was uh, prevalent throughout the ancient Near East so that the people of Israel, when he met with them at Mount Sinai, would have understood exactly what he was doing. He was imposing a treaty upon them. And uh, the treaty con contained certain obligations. It contained 
um, the promise of blessings if you obeyed it, curses if you disobeyed it, uh, and a provision that if anyone messed around with any of the details in the treaty, that they were in big, big trouble. And so, um, uh, so, so God gave the law, and around the law given to Moses, um, you have a, a history leading up to it in Genesis, then you've got um, a history of the obedience or disobedience to the covenant in the historical books. You've got um, the, the prophets are all calling people back to obedience to the law. Uh, and the even the Psalms are the worship accompaniment to, you know, the festivals of the law. So the whole thing is built around that treaty. And then what happens in the New Testament is that that treaty which was a gift of grace. That's what we have to understand. It's, it wasn't legalistic. It was a gift of God's grace by which he separated this people for himself and made promises to them. And in the law, contained in the law, was this promise that one day something was going to happen. Um, the A descendant of David was going to come uh, you know, I mean, and I know that that wasn't spoken of in the in in the Mosaic law, but even back in Genesis, you've got these prophecies. Even even back to Genesis three, you've got this prophecy of the seed of the woman dis- bruising the head of the serpent, and you've got various other prophetic words. Abraham, for instance, and the sacrifice God will provide a lamb. So all the way through the Old Testament, um, and and bearing in mind that the uh, sacrificial system as a whole is a prophetic foreshadowing of Calvary. That's it's it's uh, they sacrifice the animals uh, as a way of, of appeasing God's anger against sin, but in the knowledge that it was only temporary and it was pointing forward to something that was yet to come. And so Christ comes and he fulfills. That's why I said I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. So Christ comes to fulfill the law. Now, uh, so what happens now is that the whole sacrificial system and the system of ceremonial purity, you know, what clothes you can wear, what food you can eat, this type of thing, that was all tied in with the the, um, uh, sacrificial system uh, and obtaining forgiveness, you know, through living in that way. that now is fulfilled in the cross. So therefore, and, and we, the Bible itself, if you read Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10, um, outlines specifically for us from a theological point of view, how that is now fulfilled in the cross so that, you know, we, we can eat pork now. We don't have to sacrifice a bowl on the altar every Sunday morning and all this type of thing. But that still leaves uh, the enormous residue of the moral dimension of the law. Said, what was the heart of the law? The heart of the law wasn't sacrifice, Jesus said. The heart of the law was you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And uh, what does it mean to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself? Well, all those commands of the law, you know, from not coveting, to not moving your neighbor's boundary stone, to honest weights and measures, to not sleeping with your neighbor's wife, all those things were uh, 
expressions of how to love your neighbor as yourself. And so when Paul comes down to Romans 13, he says all the commandments of the Old Testament law are summed up in this command to love. He doesn't mean that some vague command to love is replaced all that has gone before it. What he means is that love was like a golden thread which ran through all those different commands, not moving your neighbor's boundary stone, not coveting and, and caring for the widows and the orphans and all of that stuff. And the Old, the Old Testament's full of that stuff, that this was uh, an expression of the love of God. And the difference in the new covenant is, you know, because Paul says, now uh, we can fulfill the righteous requirement of the law by walking in the spirit, Romans chapter eight, verse four. So the difference now is that we can actually begin to fulfill in a genuine, non-arrogant, non-proud, non-legalistic way. We, we can begin to fulfill God's command to love, um, not by our own strength, uh, which will fail, but by the power of the spirit who's given to us under the new covenant. So that sets up that, sorry, it's a very long winded answer, but not the first long winded answer I've given you, but it, that sets up, it sets us up for an understanding of um, law and grace, which is far richer and more biblical than sort of cut the, the old Testament out of your Bible because it's not relevant. You can't possibly understand the moral teachings of Jesus without understanding the Old Testament. Jesus was presuming that he, he, those that listened to him understood what the Old Testament already taught when he started talking about love. And what ha has happened in some modern theology is people say, well, the Old Testament's irrelevant. Now we're just supposed to love. Well, what the heck does that mean? You know, who's left to define what this word love means? Somebody thinks it means that, somebody thinks it means the next thing, somebody thinks it means something else, which somebody might say, well, it's loving to allow for abortion because, you know, it spares someone pain or inconvenience or whatever. Well, that's not love. Well, how do you know that's not love? Well, you, you know it because of the Old Testament teaching and the sanctity of life. And all these things, you know, um, are rooted and grounded in the moral teaching of the Old Testament. In your book, I like the way you put it. You say, previously the law stood against us as a just but condemning judge. Now it comes as an, ins an inspiring encouragement to be like Christ. So as you say, in Jesus, we have seen someone who lived a perfect life, who fulfilled the law with their life. So now rather than being condemned as people who fall short, we see the life of Christ as an inspiration to become more like him. Yeah, and somebody put it this way, uh, whereas the Ten Commandments kind of came across as you shall not do this and not do that. Now they come across as you shall not. You know, it's like now we have the power actually to begin to obey. And uh, the problem with the Pharisees was that they they reduced they reduced the true requirement of the law to a minimum. And Jesus tackles this head on in the Sermon on the Mount. You, you, he says, you've been told that, you know, you're not to commit adultery, but I tell you 
that if you even look in the wrong direction, right? And so Jesus is Jesus is uh, making the point that that their reduction they reduced the law to the point where they felt they were obeying it and they were righteous because they'd obeyed it in their own efforts and God owed them something. That's basically the the heart of a Pharisee that I'm a good person and I've accomplished A, B, and C, and now God's in my debt. And Jesus says, no, you can't possibly, none of us can, well, Jesus himself, barring Jesus himself, nobody can actually, if you understand the law properly, you can't fulfill it because let's face it, there isn't a person on planet earth that hasn't had an adulterous thought you know, or or had their eyes not wander in the wrong direction at one point or another, um, uh, we're all guilty. Um, and so uh, Jesus deepens the requirement of the law drastically with he's making the point that nobody can fulfill it apart from the grace of God uh, and nobody can take any credit. But um, he's opened the door through his sacrifice we're forgiven now. God gives his spirit so that we can begin to fight back. It's like Romans 6 says, um, you know, now, I mean, sin is like a tyrant that was ruling over us. And now we're no longer slaves to sin, um, but to righteousness. Uh, we're still slaves, which indicates our human weakness, but we're following righteousness and not sin which means that the battle that we're fighting, now we can begin to fight it. We'll, we'll, we won't win all the time. Uh, sometimes we'll lose. We have to bear one another's burdens in love. That way we don't want to create a legalistic culture in the church. Um, but God's given us the ability to, to begin to walk in love. And he receives all the credit. There's no room for Pharisaism in the church because not one of us uh, can take one iota of credit for any good thing that we do, because it's only by the power of the Spirit that we can do anything at all. The 11th commandment could have been, thou shalt not be a dispensationalist, that might have been. <laughs> well, that, 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 that would have been something I might have written in, but <laughs> unfortunately God didn't. It's implied. One, one, another thing in the chapter which I think is, is, is really helpful is... Um, because some people sometimes ask, well, how does the Old Testament and the New Testament relate to each other, like we said? And so you say that between in both of them, there is the same promise of salvation, one promise, and also one means of salvation. So can you unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, because salvation was always by grace in the sense that, uh, and that's what the, um, you know, the sacrificial system was about. The sacrificial system indicated that um, there was a continual problem with sin and uh, sacrifice was the only means by which uh, some measure of, of forgiveness could be obtained. Um, and yet the fact that you had to keep going back over and over again to make those sacrifices indicated that uh, there wasn't a, a final you know, there wasn't a final answer to the problem of sin had not yet been found. Um, but uh, God's promise is that, you know, if we walk in, in, if we walk in God's promise, the Israelites was if they walked in faithfulness to him and followed his law, that he would refrain from the judgment that 
they all deserved, because all of us deserve to stand under the judgment of God, but God withheld his judgment. And Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 3. He talks about how God passed over the sin, the sins that had been committed under the old covenant in his mercy, even prior to the time of Christ, because God had a plan to bring a savior and he passed over and didn't judge the saints of the old covenant. Uh, he kept them through the provisional forgiveness of the sacrificial system. None of them were ever worthy of God's forgiveness, but God graciously, by grace, did forgive them. And so, um, but Christ's sacrifice is the one permanent solution. Uh, and so, uh, and also, you know, the, the new covenant in Christ is a kind of a renewal, really, of the old covenant, or it's a fulfillment or a renewal of the old covenant, in which the means of forgiveness is changed from the sacrifice of animals to the sacrifice of God's son once and for all. And also, um, the covenant now is opened up to people of every nation, not just the Jewish people. So now God's promise comes to all nations uh, without any discrimination. In Colossians 2, uh, Paul says, Christ forgave our sins by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Can you unpack that verse a bit for us? Because Paul isn't referring to the law, is he, when he talks about the record of debt? So what, what does Paul mean there? Paul, Paul's referring to the legal judgment that the law brings against our sin. Um, so he, he's, that doesn't exhaust the meaning of the law. The law of God is, the, is an exposition of the righteous moral character of God and how he wants us to live. But obviously part of uh, the law was that it, it judges those who are, who are disobedient. And so... Uh, the uh, uh, in Colossians, uh, the the just condemnation of the law, the law God uses the law uh, justly to condemn our sin. It's a just judgment because we deserve it, and there's no way, there's no permanent way out. But now God sends Christ to the onto the cross. He takes the judgment on his shoulders. It's nailed to the cross, um, it, as Colossians says. Um, it, the, and so as Christ is nailed to the cross, our judgment is nailed to the cross. And now forgiveness comes through the blood of Christ to each of us so that uh, those of us who trust in Christ, that legal um, condemnation of the law no longer stands against us. Um, and prior to that, God's all of humanity was under God's judgment because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, and his judgment was averted only temporarily by the sacrificial system. But now he has found a permanent solution to that. So none of us needs to live under that judgment, even though we're still imperfect people. I mean, none, none of us is perfect. None of us will be until the Lord returns. But we are now uh, forgiven sinners who have access to the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's the Holy Spirit who gives us 
the power to change. I can't change myself. I can't change my conduct in the least anymore, you know, than if I was, uh, I, um, didn't know Christ. But the difference now is that I have access to the power of the Holy Spirit, whereas before I didn't. I love the start of Romans 5 when it says, you know, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God, which is just an amazing phrase. One of those phrases I feel like you can, uh, well, through our Lord Jesus Christ, it finishes. But I just feel like that's a phrase you could probably just spend the rest of your life just marveling over. You know, I have peace with God. And I guess that relates back to like we talked about that the law stood against us. But now through Jesus the debt has been cancelled and we and we have peace it's such an amazing word that i think in that context that you know we are at peace with with god i think that's amazing yeah it is and and that whole picture in romans 5 is uh of someone entering the uh, we it says it talks about having access to the to the grace of god the presence of god it, the picture is entering the throne room of a king and finding out that you're no longer at war, but you're at peace. And, uh, and of course, peace reflects the underlying Hebrew word shalom. Uh, I mean, the, obviously, in the New Testament, it's, it's the Greek word irene for peace. But um, these were Jewish people that were writing all these documents. And when they wrote peace, they were thinking of shalom. And shalom in the Old Testament is this, this incredible, magnificent word that speaks uh, it, it's not just sort of well i feel peaceful today you know i'm sitting beside a running tranquil stream or something like that um it is it, it it's health it's wholeness it's healing of body soul and spirit um it's healing between people you know it's healing between people and god um it's it's a magnificent word shalom uh and that's what we have god's brought us it's one. It's why I think we believe in, you know, physical healing. It's why physical healing and miracles were a manifestation of the coming of the kingdom, because that Isaiah, 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 depending on which country you're in, um, uh, prophesied. You know, the leap will lame for joy, the blind will see, and Jesus was consciously fulfilling the words of Isaiah's prophecy um, when he healed the the lame and the blind. And uh, and brought us in, and and so uh, he brought us into shalom because physical healing is part of shalom, and obviously our eternal reconciliation to God is more fundamental than physical healing. However, it's not right either to say, "Oh, well, spiritual healing is the only thing that matters," and physical healing is very low on the agenda because actually it wasn't low on god's agenda god is interested in spiritual healing emotional healing you know physical healing and um, we're commanded to go for the lot of it is one of the reasons why you know i uh i mean i credit john wimber and the vineyard movement with a uh, profound more far more profound understanding of that than a lot of other church movements have had i love it uh jeremiah's letter to the exiles as well where he invites them to seek the shalom of the city as well so that shalom yes. should flow out into our communities our neighborhoods it's not just about our holy huddle you know it's about seeking the holistic uh peace that we talked about for everyone 
Um, and my compliments of the vineyard, of course, to people listening are because I'm speaking to a vineyard pastor. So there you go. Well, I mean, even even if I wasn't, the vineyard would be worthy of such compliments, I'm sure. But um, now I'm sure there's well, we know there's 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 a decent number of, of pastors and leaders that, that listen to this. And so uh, one thing I wanted to ask was what advice would you give to them when they get people coming to ask them about the relationship and do I need to read Deuteronomy? Do I need to read? Does that make sense? Like, I bet pastors have to deal with these sort of questions a lot. Should I tithe? You, you, know, you should... just you just need to read No Diving. And uh, <laughs> no. Uh, that's a bit of a trite answer. It's a smart answer, but <laughs> excuse me. Um, you know, that that's why I wrote the book, to kind of give bite-sized, but with some substance to them, uh, explanations of some of these topics. Um, because I think that there's a lot of massive amount of confusion about law and grace. People don't have a clue what they're talking about. And, uh, and I also think it's entirely possible for us to create a legalistic atmosphere in church under the new covenant, because it's not a question of the new covenant or the old covenant. Legalism is not a function of the old covenant, particularly, or of the new covenant. Legalism is not a function of either covenant in God's sight, both are covenants of grace. Legalism is a misuse of, I, it was a misuse by the Pharisees of the old covenant. It is a misuse of the new covenant wherever legalism occurs in the church today. And even as recently as the last time I was preaching, which was just a few days ago, my, I received a correction from my wife uh, who pointed out that you know, something I said in terms of an exhortation uh, really needed, I really needed to emphasize the fact that it's only by grace and the power of the spirit that we can live that way. So you can't just, and I, and fortunately there was th- not only two, it was, there was three services that day in the same church. So the second and third service, at least I was able to explain, look, um, this is how God wants us to live, but I'm not just telling you do this do that that's moralism that's legalism i'm telling you to seek the power of god because it's only by the power and the grace of god that we're able to live like that so legalism is an attitude of the heart and mind that can be just as present in the christian church today as it was in the pharisees of old it's not something that's attached to either of god's covenants either the old or the new covenant well it comes as no surprise to me that elaine is the one keeping you on the straight and narrow but uh <laughs> well she does more more often than i care to admit i'm sure there's lots of lots of grace there <laughs> well we're going to wrap up it's been great david to say to everyone listening that it's a really comprehensive chapter i mean i know you've said it's bite-sized but you go into lots of examples in the new testament specifically about when paul addresses the law and it, there's lots of really interesting you know stuff in there so um, you know, Galatians 2, Corinthians 3, Ephesians 2, Colossians 2, as we mentioned it. So we really recommend reading it. Uh, but we're going to bring this episode to a close. We hope this has whetted your appetite. And we have one more to go after this, which is the church, which feels like a feels like a good one to end on um, as two pastors chatting together. But David, thanks again for your time. And uh, we look forward to speaking to you all again soon. 